Good morning. Today's reading is from Hebrews 5:11 through 6:12. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible and have wait, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those who for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is the word of God. Good morning. Let's, let's pray. God, you are so good, and you are great, and greatly to be praised and we're just grateful, God, I'm grateful to be here um, with the saints, and uh, grateful, God, that you hold us fast, that um, on that moment when you uh, arrest us, when you changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, God, that we are forever anchored in, and I thank you for that truth, and God, I pray that we'd be anchored in that truth, even as we... Um, as we embark on this uh, this difficult passage, I pray that you'd give us grace. I pray that there would be uh, no condemnation. I pray, Spirit of God, that where conviction is needed, God, I just pray that you'd bring conviction and, uh, and encouragement and a reminder that you are good and loving and that you uh, that your saving work will never fail. We love you, and we ask that you'd be honored and glorified. God's people said, amen. Well, I feel like... Um, I was, when I was in the investment business, I had to wear a suit every day, except Friday, and Friday was casual day, and so I feel like we get to have casual day today, so uh, I, I suspect, Ryan, you described what we're doing here today, kind of, yeah, that's great, I'm not sure what we're doing here today, other than worshiping God and preaching his life-giving, active word. Uh, today we're in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12, we continue our series that we titled, Is Jesus Better? Um, is Jesus Better? And I want to just kind of give you um, maybe a, a caution up front. This is, um, 
arguably, this is the toughest passage in Hebrews, if not one of the toughest passages in all of Scripture. And there are uh, people who, um, that, I mean, there's all, uh, people land in different places uh, throughout the years. And, um, and um, there's parts of this passage today that I'm just going to kind of go over at a high level, because quite frankly, I'm not 100% sure what the author had in mind, and there's other uh, places where I just want to really drill down, because I think it's something that, that the church, um, uh, professing believers, um, need to hear. Uh, we all need to hear. But I also want to tell you this, that if, that if you uh, kind of shut your ears to what, sh- what, it, what is being taught today, um, it means that this is probably for you. Um, if you say, this is not for me, um, you know, I'm good, uh, I would say it's for you. And, um, um, and if you're asking the question, is this me, uh, then this is probably not you. It's not for you. And so um, there's something here for all of us. Let me just dig in and... Um, and see if God in his kindness would give us understanding and bring encouragement to us today. We all know someone, uh, we all know somebody who was in a Bible study, went to church, served the poor, they shared their faith, uh, they were evangelists, they, they had a thriving faith at one point, and now they have nothing to do with Christ or his church or his word. We all know someone who came forward to, at an altar call, They prayed the sinner's prayer. They were baptized. But today, best case, they want nothing to do with Christ's church, his word, and his people. And worst case, they've deconstructed their faith. Does anybody know that term? There are people today, there's been people through centuries, but today the term is deconstructed, that they've actually grown up in the church, they profess faith in Christ, and now they're going backwards and deconstructing it and denying the reality of the risen Jesus Christ. I know people like this. I've served with people like this. I've baptized people like this. I want to believe that they're still Christians. I want to believe that they will be in heaven one day. But what grounds do I have for this hope? What grounds do you have for this hope? Could you say that somebody like Ravi Zacharias is in heaven? Maybe. Maybe not. What makes you so sure either way? Who is saved and how do you know they're saved? How do you know if you're saved? My story, as some of you may know, is that when I was, uh, I grew up in the Catholic Church, I told you this last week, and I came to what I believe was saving faith when I was 15 years old. Um, It was through a ministry called Young Life, Um, through a man by the name of Chuck Cook who shared the gospel with me. I always knew that there was a God who was angry, who was was in complete control, but I never knew that there was a God who loved me and wanted to not only forgive me of my sin, but wanted to walk with me in my sin, wanted to meet me right where, where I was at. And I gave my life to Christ when I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school, between my sophomore and senior year at a Young Life camp in Canada. And then right after that, um, like, man, I just, I couldn't get enough of God's word. I couldn't get enough of God's people in the context of young life. I started leading Bible studies. Um, I started teaching, and there was just massive, you would look at me and go, like, this guy is on a path towards heaven. And then I graduate from high school, go to the University of No Credit in Greeley, UNC, (laughs) 
I can say that. I graduated there. It's like getting a two-year degree in other places. And, and I just, I deep dove into the world. Um, I, played, I played rugby. Um, I uh, dated all the wrong girls and, um, and um, engaged in uh, drinking and drugs and um, still knew that, that God was out there, but I kind of put God on hold and said, God, like, I believe in you, but I'm just going to live my life my way for a period of time, and I'll be back when I'm done. And fast forward, that was when I was um, 17 when I was in college. Uh, I was fresh, uh, freshman year, August is my birthday, so I think I was 17, 18 years old. Fast forward to 13 years into marriage, um, when I was, you know, was uh, in my early 30s now, where uh, my life was a, was a wreck, um, that I'd made a mess of my marriage, I'd made a mess of um, every relationship I had. I was living, I was deep dive, I deep dove into the world. I had not, um, I wasn't in a church other than the Catholic Church to baptize my three kids um, for over a decade. And the question becomes, was I a Christian? What, what, what gave me the assurance that I was a Christian? Is it because I had that, that two or three years of radical change where I was um, living for Jesus for that period of time? Or, or is the evidence that I wasn't a Christian the, the, the 12 to 13 years that followed? Well, God in his kindness either saved me for the first time when I was 33 years old or he brought me back home. Now, I don't know. I, I can't give testimony to you today that uh, on, on July 8th, 1973, that if I would have died on July 9th, that I would have went to heaven just because I prayed a prayer. The prodigal will always come home. And if the prodigal, the one that walked away from the faith, doesn't come home, there is, there's no confidence that they were ever in the faith. We're going to talk about this today. It's what the passage talks about. Last week we learned that the ancient high priest who, who made an eternal sacrifice for the sins of the people, that, that, the, that the ancient high priest that had to do this year after year, on the, on the Day of Atonement, um, that their sacrifice was ultimately ineffective. It had to be repeated year after year. But it was a shadow of greater things to come. It was a shadow of the great high priest. It was a shadow of a sacrifice that would be made in, to, to pay for the sins of all who would believe once and for all. He said this in he Hebrews 5, 9 through 10, the end of last week. And being made perfect, Jesus... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And we, we talked last week that this obedience, you're not saved by obedience. You're saved by grace through faith. But, the, but when he talks about that he, he was the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, it's obedience to faith. It's, it's obeying the call to believe. And it says in verse 10 about Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there's more for this author to teach us on Mel. Uh, we, we barely touched the service on Melchizedek last week, and he's going to revisit it. And we're going to revisit it in two weeks, in chapter 7, verse 1. But first, 
the audience, which includes you and me, the audience needs a warning, an encouragement, and a charge before he gets back to the doctrine of, or the, the, the person of Melchizedek. We need a warning. He's, he's going to warn those who don't exhibit the fruit of salvation in their lives. There's, there's a warning in this passage for professing believers that have no progressive fruit in their lives. He's going to give us an encouragement. He's going to encourage uh, those who, uh, whose work and love and serving exhibit the fruit of salvation. That we shouldn't walk in fear. That you know if there's fruit, the Spirit of God is, growing, is bearing fruit in your life. There's great encouragement that you belong to the living God. Then he's going to give us a charge. He will charge all believers to be earnest or diligent and have full assurance of hope until the end. In fact, he writes that it's impossible for some professing Christians to fall away from, uh, uh, who fall away from the faith to be restored again. And this is a heavy doctrine. So let's, let's just dive in uh, verse 11. Chapter 5. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. About what? About Melchizedek. About Mel. He's got more to say about Mel, and he's going to continue that in chapter 7, verse 1. He says it's hard to explain about Mel right now because you're dull or sluggish of hearing. His listeners are not ready to hear about Mel, about this, this, uh, about how Jesus is a great high priest in the line or the order of Melchizedek. He'll pick this subject back up, as I just said, in chapter 7, and he hopes that we'll be more ready to hear about this then. What does it mean to be dull of hearing? Dull is the same word as sluggish or slothful, and he uses the same word at the end end of the section in chapter 6, verse 12, where he charges his audience not to be sluggish. Don't be slothful. Don't be dull in your faith. Here in verses 12 to 14, it says, for though by this time you who are dull in your hearing, you're sluggish in your faith, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. They had had apparently already been uh, taught the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracles of God is the word of God. But it has not sunk in, and they need to be taught again. So what are these basic principles that they need to be taught again? We're not 100% sure, but we can, we can make some educated guess. Uh, the most basic fundamentals of Christ is that, that all the promises of the New Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus. They've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That the Old Testament is a shadow of better things to come. Some of the other basic principles were saved not by obedience, but unto obedience. We're saved by faith unto obedience. And as a result of Jesus' finished work, we're fully accepted. And it's out of this acceptance that we work and we serve and we love. We don't, uh, we don't work and serve and love so that we can be accepted. We've been fully accepted. This is a basic principle of the Word of God, is that by faith, because of faith, because of grace through faith, we've been fully accepted. And that Faith works, it serves, it loves. 
It's not dead, as James says. We're saved by grace and not by works. God's grace changes the direction of our life. You see, that's one of the reasons I wonder if I was saved when I was 15. Like, my, my direction changed for a few years, but then uh, went right back into fleshly living. But God's grace changes the direction of our life, and His grace doesn't give us permission to continue sinning. He goes on to tell, tell the, his audience that, that they should be teaching these truths by now. What I don't think he means is that we should all be teachers. Because not everybody has the gift of teaching. But we should all be giving it away. In some level, we should be, we should be giving it away. Like a baby, this, these people that he's speaking to need milk. They need to be taught the ABCs of their faith again. By now they should be on solid food, but they're not ready. And like a baby, if they, don't, uh, if they don't at some point progress to solid foods, they'll become malnourished and their spiritual growth will be stunted. I've got one of my grandsons that um, he doesn't just live on milk, but he, but he doesn't live on meat. He lives on mac and cheese and, and um, you know, other like carbohydrates. And um, it sounds like a fun diet, actually. I'd like to, I'd like to try that. You know, like uh, Skittles and gumdrops and stuff like that. But like, I, I love the way his parents are, are are parenting him because they they just know that at some point, like he's he's going to start eating protein because his body needs it. His body needs protein. But but this author is worried that these people will never get off of milk, and if they don't get off of milk, they're going to stay malnourished, and they're actually not going to grow to maturity. So he so he writes to them, saying that they're immature, they're stuck on milk. And, and, and in saying that, he's saying that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And we see that where? We see that in verse 13, that they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. It says, you're, you are ready for solid food of the word when you're maturing. And when you're maturing, um, you have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What he's talking about here is that mature people feast on the Word of God. They feast, that's the solid food that they feast on the Word of God. And being unskilled in the Word of Righteousness is another way of saying you don't know what or how to do what is right. You're unskilled in the Word of Righteousness. If you don't know how or what to do what is right in God's kingdom, you're going to stay immature and you're going to feed on milk. And you see, it's, it, the, some of the elementary doctrines are is that we've been saved by grace. But we need to move on and to live and love and work and serve um, out of that grace. When we're nursed by the Word of God, which involves regular consumption, we mature. And proof of that maturity is that we've been trained by the Word of God to distinguish between good and evil. And if you've been trained by the Word of God to, dis to distinguish between what's good and what's evil. Our natural fleshly instincts are reshaped and our values and endeavors are reshaped when we feast on God's Word. You see, I was a, I was a spiritual dwarf from age 15 to about age 33. And I may have been in Christ, but there was, I wasn't feeding on anything, but I was, I was feeding on the world. 
And I was, and I was just counting on, that, on the, those basic doctrines that I was saved by grace, but I wasn't moving beyond that to live it out. Therefore, I don't know if I was saved or not. Being in God's Word trains us to not be sluggish and to live righteously. Have you ever had the experience where you've watched, you watched a movie that you remember watching 20 years ago? I did this with my kids, my boys, like with The Dirty Dozen and Cool Hand Luke. Who doesn't like Paul Newman? And I remember loving that movie. My dad took me to it, the Arvada Plaza Shopping Center when it first came out. And I remember sitting my boys, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Mitch, at all, but like, I, I'm like, I'm like 30 minutes into it, like, I don't remember that. Like, there's swearing and nakedness, and like, what had happened is that, that God had trained me in righteousness by, by, um, by giving me a conscience that is formed by God's word where I didn't enjoy the same things that I used to enjoy. And I would say this, if you enjoy, if you, can, if you can subject yourself to the same things that you subjected yourself to before you were in Christ, and there's not a bad taste in your mouth at all, I, would, I want to encourage you to, to wash yourself daily in God's word and let it, let it uh, train you in righteousness. So what the author of Hebrews is describing, he's describing profession, pro- professing Christians who are not growing in maturity. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as, as infants in Christ. Infants in Christ are still living in the flesh. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. Why? Because you're still in the flesh. You're still, you're still operating in the flesh. You're still living as you live before you profess faith in Christ. So now we find ourselves in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, and he says, Therefore, therefore, since the milk keeps us immature and solitude grows us into a discerning mature teachers, therefore, let us leave the basic principles. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Literally, what going on to maturity means let us be carried on. Let us be carried forward. There's a sense that God is doing it for us. Not laying again, not again laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It's, it's the milk described in these three phrases. Repentance from dead works and the faith toward God, that's one. Two is instruction about washings and laying on hands, that's two. And three is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I'm not 100% sure there's debate as actually what this is talking about, but this is a Jewish audience that seems to be falling back into their Old Testament ways rather than trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Um, When he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, I think what he's saying here is that dead works are works of the flesh or sins that lead to death. And repentance for such things was insisted in the Old Testament. What did John the Baptist do when he came on the scene? He baptized for the repentance of sins. 
He, he, he wanted the Jewish people to start living um, in submission to the commandments. But what did Jesus say when he came on the scene? Repent? Was that enough? And what? Believe in the gospel. It's not about morality. It's not about just doing the right things. It's about believing and repenting. So, so he talks about repentance from dead works and faith towards God, and then he he talks about instruction, about washing and the laying of hands. Apparently these Jewish people are going back to the ceremonial cleansing and, um, and washings and the laying on of hands of animals. Remember what the high priest would do? He would lay his hand on, the, on one of the goats and he would say a prayer. It would be symbolism of all the people's sin going into the, into the goat, under the head of the goat, and he would let the goat go into the desert to die. It would be a scapegoat. And, um, and so they're, they're going back to some of these practices. And then he talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but here it is. The ABCs of, of, of all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, I love this. He says, going back to verses 1 and 2, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now skip to verse 3. We will do this if God permits. We will do this. We will move forward. God willing, with God's assistance, we will move on to maturity together. He will carry us along. If you're his, he will carry you along. It doesn't matter how big your sin was yesterday. It doesn't matter what you did last month. We're saying he will carry you on. It's God who carries us forward. We're matured and transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God in the context of the people of God. And he's going to give us a warning here now in verses 4 through four through 10, I think. We're going to start off in verses 4 through 6. He says, let us leave these elementary doctrines of, doctrines of the Messiah in the previous verses, for it is impossible. Why leave them? For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, ongoing crucifixion, the Son of God to their own harm and holding them holding them up to contempt. Is there anybody else besides me that goes, my life? I don't like this. It's a hard verse. It's a hard verse. He's talking about people like me when I was 15. He's talking about people that you know, that have professed Christ, but have no resemblance to Christ. They're not part of his church. They're not part of. Uh, they're not part of. Uh, they want nothing to do with Jesus, his church, or his word. They had once been enlightened. Those who are enlightened are those who are exposed to God's saving life through hearing the gospel proclaimed. They had once tasted the heavenly gift. They might have seen that Jesus is good, and believed that He could save them from their sin. 
They had once shared in the Holy Spirit. They might have witnessed and been beneficiaries of the fruit of the Spirit working in other people. You can walk into this church, this church that is full of of the Spirit of God because you people are full of the Spirit of God. You can walk in here without the Spirit of God and experience the Spirit of God through the people of God. They shared in the Holy Spirit and they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. There was hope for them that they wouldn't go to hell. They had tasted uh, some level of morality and goodness in the Word of God. So this author is describing a person who had a conversion experience and and now has fallen away from the faith that they once professed. And he is also saying that there is an impossibility of them being restored to repentance or faith in Christ. We've got to wrestle with it. It's here in the Bible. And he gives a reason for this impossibility, and don't miss this reason. He gives a reason why it's impossible that they be restored once again to repentance. It's because they are crucifying once again the Son of God in verse 6. He says they're nailing them to the cross over and over again. Their sinning is willing and continual. It's deliberate and continual. So he says that it's impossible to, resource, to restore such a person to repentance because they, they have sustained and uh, they have a sustained and willful rejection of Christ. They have a sustained and willful rejection of Christ of his church and his word. They have no desire to turn. They have no conviction in their sin. And I think you ladies that are in the women's study, or at least in the heart to heart on Thursday mornings, are in Hebrews chapter 10 right now. And it says something about this. It says this in Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, doing what God's asked, dies without mercy. I don't know if the writer of Hebrews was just having a bad day, a bad month, a bad year, What I think is happening here is that he loves these people. He loves the church. And he wants to see them walking in newness of life with their Savior. Paul says something similar in Romans 5, 20 through 6, 2. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What he's saying here is that the the greater understanding we have of God's law, the greater we understand we have of our our own sin. Right? When we we know what he's called us to, we see how we miss the mark. And when the more that we see how we miss the mark, the more we understand what? God's grace. His grace. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise God. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. 
Then he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? That's what I did. I was saved by grace when I was 15. God, thank you. And I'm going to go live my life however I want to live it. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Invited in. Not turn from it. He says, these are the people who can't be restored to repentance after they've had some type of salvation experience. So, question for you. And we're going to spend some time here. Is the author saying that those who are genuine Christians can lose their salvation? It's the right question, isn't it? For this text. There's a number of interpretations of this text and of this doctrine. And let me give you three. People in the camp of Arminianism would say that you can lose your salvation. I can't imagine living that way. That you can lose your salvation. But there's problems with this. And how do we know there's problems? Because this tells us you can't lose your salvation. Let me give you some examples. John 10, 27 through 30. This is Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 35 and 37 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, if you need more evidence. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a work, good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. One more if you doubt it, 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He'll see you all the way through, and if anybody's charismatic this morning, this is a good place for an Amen. It's not impossible to be restored again because God is rejecting you. It's impossible to be restored again because you are rejecting God. These folks that he's preaching to um, have fallen away from faith in Christ and they're choosing to live in the flesh. Here's a second option after the question, can you lose your faith? Someone can lose their heavenly rewards. Is this talking about um, someone losing their heavenly rewards? Well, if it is, he, he sure should say something about heavenly rewards. He's, I'm not going to add that into the text, so we'll dismiss that one. Number three, he's talking to someone who has my new favorite word, spurious faith. Counterfeit faith. This is where we land as a church. 
on this doctrine. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe you can't lose your salvation. But we believe all who are true professing believers will persevere to the end. Not a straight linear line, but they will persevere. There will be higher highs and higher lows for you stock market people. It is possible to have an emotional response to the gospel and even have some change in life for a period of time and then fall away. I'm forgetting the guy's name, but we should pray for him. Who's the guy that wrote I Kissed Dating Dating Goodbye? Joshua Harris. He's fallen away from the faith. He's deconstructed his faith. He was a lead pastor at a sovereign grace church that preached the gospel week after week after week. He encouraged young people, messed up some young people too, by the way, with his book. Messed up my parenting with that book. But he has renounced the faith. So how can we say that we will see Joshua in heaven one day? Unless he turns and repents and puts his faith once again in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few scriptures that speak to this. That someone who, um, who has professed faith may not be a true Christian. Scariest verse in the Bible, Bible Matthew 7, 21-23. Not, this is Jesus talking. Not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, on that day, on that day when, when they're sitting at the judgment seat, Many will say to me, I don't know why, it says many. I pray there's not many people we know. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hebrews is full of these warnings. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here in verses 4 through 6. Chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. And then in chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And finally, let me give you Mark chapter 4, verses 14 through 20, the parable of the sower. Of the sower. My son's dog's name is Sawyer. This is the parable of the sower, not the dog. It says this, the sower sows the word. It's a parable. It's a picture of a sower spreading the good news of the gospel. In verse 15, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. This is the first soil. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the word that is sown to them. There's, like, there's no fruit. 
Just right away, the enemy takes. My wife told me she's a she's a gardener and she like puts seeds in the ground and the birds take the seeds. So she said she's going to start calling the birds Satan. So that works, honey. Second soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they heard the word, immediately they received it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but for, but endure for a while. Then when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the third soil in verse 18, and, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and prove it unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And what else? And bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. I think even double. Even raisins. But there's fruit. And it may be the parable of the, so of the sower that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he writes the words found in, in verses 7 and 8 in our text today. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. I believe that blessing is salvation. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its, and its end is to be burned. You see, those who have drank of the living word of God and have repented and believed the gospel will bear increasing fruit over time. There may be seasons, there may be days, there may be years where there's no fruit. There may not be daily perfection, but there's sure direction. There are healthy trees that produce bountifully some years, and in other years, there's no fruit. But in, there's no, in those years where there's no fruit, the roots are growing deeper. So that in the next year it can produce fruit. And by the way, I'll say this if I forget to say it later on. We don't bear fruit. The Spirit of God bears fruit in us. If you think about Galatians 5. Like our job is not to bear fruit. Our job is to believe. To trust. To lean in. To submit. To be filled with the Spirit. And He bears fruit in our lives. What the author is saying here is that where there is a root, a salvation root, there will be fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no Christian root. Jonathan Edwards says, said that the sign of signs is Christian living. You want to know if someone's a Christian? Do you want to know if you're a Christian? Examine your life. Sometimes, I was thinking about this, sometimes the evidence of our fruit could be, John's, could be uh, what Paul said in, in Romans 7. Lord, why do I continue doing the things that I don't want to do? Why, do I con why can't I do the things that I should be doing? Just that, that honest prayer that, that shows that there's conviction. Like God, like I, and I do this all the time, particularly in my marriage. Like I was on my knees the other day saying, Lord, like, why do I continue saying these same things and being so impatient with Nancy? God, would you change me? 
Would you help me walk in the Spirit? Would you help me honor and glorify you by honoring my wife? And I think there's, just, there's, there's fruit in that. Like there's not, He's not looking for the fruit of perfection because you'll never see it. But is there conviction? Is there a desire to honor and glorify God with your words, with your thoughts, with your actions? Many Christians today, particularly in this day of, of megachurches and walking the aisle and crusades, many Christians think they have their ticket to heaven. They think it's been punched and they can put it in their back pocket and then live however they want to live and still arrive at their destination safely. That's not the way it works. Many crusades, many pastors would have people walk the aisle would assure you that you're saved when you raise your hand and you ask Jesus into your heart. And it's not to say that you're not saved when you walk the aisle and ask Jesus into your heart. But Paul, or the, the author of Hebrews is talking to people that have been Christians for a while. And what he's saying is that you cannot, you cannot look back at the, at the aisle you walked, the hand that you raised, the prayer that you prayed, and say, because of that, I'm good to go. The confidence that you have that you're good to go is a conviction of sin. It's the, it's the fruit that the Spirit of God is bearing in you. So despite this warning, the author goes on to say that he's confident. He's confident that his readers, that his audience professes faith that will prove to be genuine. He says this in Hebrews uh, 6, 9. And I think... Um, I think the author's just a bit like schizophrenic, but he's like he, he wants these people to be in heaven, but he also now wants to like he want, he sees the fruit. He serves with these people. He loves these people. And he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, the things that belong to salvation. Though we give you this warning, beloved, and by the way, this is the only time in all of Hebrews that he calls the audience beloved. It's not that he doesn't love them, but I think he just needed to use it here. He loves them and he doesn't want them to question your faith. You shouldn't question your faith if there's fruit being born. Even when Paul says to examine your faith, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, that's not like a daily thing, like God, like I, is there habitual practices of sin that you're not convicted of? That you have no desire to change. If that's true, that's you, then you, you, you should heed this warning and heed the words of Paul to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And for the rest of us, though he speaks this way, in your case, beloved, feel, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And he says this for two connected reasons. He's sure of their salvation for two reasons in Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He says you can be sure of better things that belong to salvation because there's fruit in your life. You're loving people. You're serving people. And these works of love don't save us, but they're evidence that we are saved. He says the other thing that gives, gives them confidence is God's character. God's not unjust. 
and he's not unfaithful. He will bring you all the way through if he is his. And he, he ends with this charge in, in verses 6 through, uh, excuse me, 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you, and this is, for, this is for you, church, this is for me. And we desire each one of you, Christians, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, not just today, but till the end, so that you may not be sluggish or dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. So let me just close with this. Real faith will persevere. Real faith will change the way you live. Real, real faith produces real fruit. And God will hold you fast. If you're His, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So there's a warning here for you. If this is for you, if this warning is for you, and only you know, I want to I encourage you today to repent and come home. And the Father's arms are open. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been thinking. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. Come home. Come home. There's an encouragement. If, there's, if, this, if you receive this encouragement that he will hold you fast, um, just double down. Like, God, thank you. I want to live my life for you. And I want to see you glorified in my life in, in new and fresh ways. And this charge is for us, church, is to stay in the church. Stay close to God's people and feast on the Word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, thanks for your sense of humor and for giving me this passage. And I thank you, God, that um, I just thank you, God, that in as hard as this passage was and as nervous as I was to preach it, just how studying it in a, in a crazy way, God, gave me just more confidence in your spirit and in your word and in my salvation. God, it's, it's caused me to want to just worship you and to live for you and to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. And so, God, I pray that, um, I pray, God, that we would be spurred on uh, this morning to, to just press in, to be reminded that you hold us fast. And, and God, I do pray for anybody here that's has a spurious faith, a counterfeit faith. Only you know. And I pray, God, that they would come out of the proverbial closet, um, come in, come out of the dark, into the light, to be saved by grace through faith. We love you. We thank you that you love us more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.